Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, excited as well to continue wrapping up our, uh, to begin, actually not continue, but to begin wrapping up our summer series. If, uh, if, if you're new or visiting, uh, it might be helpful to know we spent the summer uh, talking about studying what the Bible has to say about the attributes of God. And uh, what we've seen throughout the, the, our summer is that an attribute, it, it refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to someone. And what we see in Scripture is that God's attributes, they define and describe who He is. In other words, they, they tell us who He is and what He is like. And it can be easy to think that a kind of study like that, it's talking about all kinds of theological words maybe that you never heard of, or big, kind of big esoteric ideas in some ways, that that's, that's, some really, that's a really good idea for pastors and professors to spend time thinking about. But what I hope you've seen and what I want to show you again this morning as we study is, is the, the deeply practical implications that thinking rightly about who God is and what what he is like have on our everyday lives. Because the truth is, is that what you believe, it always determines what you do. Our, our behaviors, our attitudes, our, our emotions, those things are a tangible expression of our beliefs. And so the reality is that when our actions and attitudes are out of line with God's purposes, with his word, with his will for our lives, ultimately on a foundational level, that comes from the fact that we either don't know, we've forgotten, or we've refused to believe something true about God. And so what that means is that becoming the people that God's made us to be, it invariably involves, it begins with us beholding and believing the truth about who God says that he is. And so as we begin to wrap up our series this morning, we actually are going to come to the final attribute that we're going to spend our time talking about. Uh, it's an attribute that all of the others have kind of inevitably been leading us towards, and it's, it's a big one. In fact, it's so big, we're actually going to spend uh, this week and next week talking about this idea because there's just too much to fit in one sermon. And the attribute that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks is God's sovereignty. You see, resounding throughout the pages of Scripture is the proclamation that God is king. Not just a king, not just any king, but that he is the king. God's sovereignty it refers to the reality that as king, God rules and reigns with absolute power and authority and control from the hugest significant kinds of things to the smallest and most minuscule, in, uh, in, innoticeable kinds of things. He is in complete control of everything that happens without any gaps or limits or interference. And the reality is, is that as Americans in particular, we kind of chafe against the idea. We, it rubs us the wrong way that there's a, there's a being who has absolute power and authority over us, whose will we cannot bend to our own, right? We, we feel like we should at least get to vote on all of the various decisions that are happening, right? We have a well-founded history of rebelling against sovereigns who do not take our opinions into consideration, right? And see, that's a big reason why I've left this attribute until the end of our series, because the reality is, is that God's absolute sovereign rule and reign is not just an attribute that is difficult to wrap our minds around, it is one that is difficult to trust. It's difficult for us to trust. 
You see, and the only way that we're going to be able to embrace the sovereignty of God and see it as good news is if we've spent the, the rest of our time studying the rest of it, his attributes, seeing how they not only inevitably lead us to this conclusion, but how they also safeguard it. See, God is not a tyrant king. He's not just a, just a narcissistic oligarch. He is a good king. See, and over the course of these next couple of sermons, what, what I want to show you is not just the reality or the scope of God's sovereignty. We're going to talk about that stuff. But what I want to show you as well are the far-reaching implications that his sovereignty has in our lives. It's not just an idea. It's something that transforms our very behaviors. It transforms the way that we live. And I want to show you how beholding and believing in the sovereignty of God is good news that both humbles us and also empowers us to become the people God's made us to be. And so with that in mind, let me pray and we'll dive into our time together in God's word. God, thanks so much for our time together. We are glad to get to gather together to worship you. And, and so God, as we do every week, we want to ask that you'd help us to come to you humbly. God, your sovereign rule and authority in our lives is an idea that we often push back against. And I pray this morning by your grace and by your spirit that you might enable it to be the good news that it is, but also that you might help us to gladly put ourselves under your good sovereign rule and authority, that we might not just see it as good news, but that we'd surrender to it as good news. And so, God, I have absolutely no ability to make that happen, but you do. And so I ask God for our good and so that you might be glorified in us as a people as we worship you, uh, that you do that in us. So we need you for all of it. We're glad and we know that you love to meet us in our need for you. So we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, when you look throughout the pages of Scripture, what you see over and over and over is the proclamation that God is the king of everyone and everything. That as king, he rules and reigns over everything with absolute power and authority. That he's in complete control of everything that happens, right? Without any gaps or limits or interference, right? And one commentator puts it this way. He says, to say that God is sovereign is not just to say that he is stronger than everyone else, although he is. Rather, to call him sovereign is to ascribe to him a rule and authority that transcends space and time, that leaves nothing outside of its scope. Psalm 103 verse 19 says it this way, that the Lord has established his throne in heaven, his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens, he does whatever pleases him. Job 42 Verse 2 says, I, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 reminds us that we've been chosen, have been predestined, Paul writes, according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purposes of his will. You see, the Bible does not dance around the idea, it doesn't skirt around it, it doesn't allude to it. The Bible is unabashedly clear that God does not just rule and reign over some things or most things, but that he has absolute sovereign authority over everything. 
But maybe some of you are like the stage in life where my son is, and he needs a little more clarifier on what everything includes, right? Just to be specific, right? Maybe some of you that's also helpful for, right? Well, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all kinds of things. It taught, teaches that God's sovereign over huge and significant kinds of things, like the seasons and the weather, right? The idea that there's just some kind of natural law that just exists and just floats around, right? That, that operates outside of God's control, absent, absent from his authority, that doesn't exist in the Bible. Matthew chapter 5 says it this way, that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, that he sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, we read about how God, how God hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to sink the very ship Jonah was using to try to escape from God's purposes and from his will. We see that God can throw around the forces of nature wherever, however, whenever he sees fit. And you see in the New Testament, he can stop those forces just as well. Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat and huge, this huge storm pops up and the disciples, many of whom are fishermen, are freaking out. They think their boat's about to capsize, that they're all about to die. And the passage simply says that Jesus gets up says that he rebuked the wind, said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down. It was completely calm. The disciples, they were, says, Mark says, were terrified and amazed. They asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, it's the sovereign Lord of the universe. That's who it is. See, God's sovereign over all kinds of huge things, not just the weather over the seasons, but he's sovereign over the rise and fall of countries and governments and leaders. Psalm chapter 22, verse 28 says it this way, that the dominion belongs to the Lord, that he rules over the nations. Acts chapter 17, Paul speaking to the theologians at the Areopagus, he says, from one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, Daniel praises God. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Just a few chapters later in the book of Daniel, you see that he does the exact thing to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king that Daniel was serving under at the time. And then you read in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, that the same was true of the great Egyptian king Pharaoh about whom God declared, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Paul Tripp, pastor, theologian, he, he puts it this way, I think it's so helpful. He writes, he says, whatever you think about politics, beneath the chaos of human government, the rise and fall of leaders, the frustrations and fears that these things often produce in us, stands a sovereign Lord who rules the times and the seasons of history, who puts kings in place and brings them down. As Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh both learn, no human leader has autonomous power. No human leader has final authority or independent rule. They all have a limited sovereignty for a limited time. For every human authority exists and continues under the authority of God, the king over all the kings. He rules the leaders and in so doing charts the very course of history itself. Isaiah chapter 14, God says that he is the Lord Almighty. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will happen. God never gets to plan B. 
He's never surprised by situations and has to rethink his order of events. He's not taken off guard. His purposes, his plans, his will, all of it is always accomplished. He is never thwarted. He is never sidetracked. He never has opposition he cannot overcome. See, but it's not just big things God controls, like the course of history. It's small things too, right? Maybe you maybe remember in the story of Jonah how God sends this giant fish to kind of rescue Jonah out of the sea and bring him back to the path that he's supposed to be on. God told him to go, but maybe what you don't know is in Jonah chapter 4, God causes this single solitary plant to rise up and shade Jonah, and then the next morning he sends a worm to eat it and destroy it. Even plants, individual plants and worms, obey the command of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus explains that two sparrows are sold for a penny. He's saying these tall, small, tiny, insignificant things, right? He says, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. Right? Pay attention. He doesn't say not one of them fall to the ground outside your Father's knowledge. He says outside of his care. He's talking about God's sovereign rule and authority. See, Jesus is not just saying that God's sovereign over the big stuff, but that he's sovereign over the most small and seemingly insignificant things as well. And so there's big things and small things that God rules and reigns over, but there's also all the random stuff God seems to rule over as well. In Proverbs chapter, 30, uh, chapter 16, verse 33, the writer of Proverbs says that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots was a way people tried to figure out what they should be doing in their lives and where things would happen. And what the writer of Proverbs says is that all those things, God decides what will happen with it. In 1 Kings chapter 22, it writes that someone drew his bow at random and he hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. As the king died and was, and was, uh, was, was, was dead, they, the passage goes on to say that they washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria and dogs lipped up his blood. It, the passage goes on to say all of this happened just as the word of the Lord had declared it would. So God's sovereign over big things, small things, random things, He's sovereign over our daily lives and plans. In Proverbs chapter 20 and also in verse 19 says that a person's steps are directed by the Lord. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. He's sovereign as well over our abilities, even disabilities. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 17 and 18, Moses is speaking to the people. He says, you may say to yourself, I power and my strength and my hands have produced this wealth for me. He says, but remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce it in the first place. In Exodus chapter 4, 11, the Lord said to Moses, who gives human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I? But it's not just the parts of our lives or the plans of our lives, it's the very beginning and end of them as well. God reigns over. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, God says it this way, There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. Psalm 139, David sings about God's sovereign authority over his own life. He says it this way, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Are you getting the picture? God's sovereignty is endless. He's even, we see in Scripture, sovereign over evil things like sin 
and disobedience and rebellion. And in saying that, what I'm not saying is that God is the cause of evil and sin and rebellion, but what I am saying is that because God is sovereign and in control of all things, that he ultimately works out even sin and rebellion and evil for his own good purposes and for the good of those who love and follow him. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers who, who, uttered, who in utter hatred and contempt for him sold him into slavery, and he says to them that what you intended for harm, what you intended to do to harm me, he says, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He's talking about the, the salvation of the whole Israel people from, from, from famine. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, the early church is gathered together in prayer and they're under threat of severe persecution. And what they're doing is reminding themselves about God's sovereignty. And they pray, they say, they remind themselves, they say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, these oppositions to them, they say, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. He says, but they did only what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In the context of enduring difficult situations, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. And if you keep reading that passage, what you find is that the, the good that, that Paul is promising here, the good that God is promising is not merely a situational good or, or a familial good or a great marriage or an easy life or a perfect career. But instead, it's an eternal kind of good. A good that's promised here is the good of God's rescuing, forgiving, transforming grace. Paul writes, he says, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That those he called, he, he, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. You see, God's not just sovereign over our lives, their beginnings and ends. He's sovereign over in our eternal states as well. We're going to actually spend all of next week talking about God's sovereignty as it pertains to salvation and, and faith. We're going to spend the whole week talking about that next week because there's a whole lot of deep and profound implications about that reality. But, but for now, I just want to just, just briefly... There's these reminders throughout Scripture. Paul, quoting the Old Testament in chapter 9, he writes about how God told Moses that he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And he'll show compassion on whom he will show compassion. Paul goes on to say, therefore, it doesn't matter. It doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. In Acts chapter 13, God's Spirit sends Paul and Barnabas to go preach the gospel to his Gentiles. And, and what you see is in verse 48 is that when the Gentiles heard this, it says they were glad, they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. That passage highlights how God's not just sovereign over the ends of people's salvation, but he's sovereign over the means of it as well, right? He sends Paul and Barnabas to go preach the gospel. That's how people heard and how they responded. But before that, what you see is that God sends Jesus himself to be the very means of our salvation in the first place. Preaching about Jesus in Acts chapter 2, Apostle Peter, he says it this way, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. The very thing that God said would happen all the way back in Isaiah 53, when he said it was the Lord's will to crush his servant and to cause him to suffer. God's sovereignty is all-encompassing. That's what I want you to see. The scope of his sovereignty has no bounds or limits. 
Every molecule of creation, every motive of the heart is under his good kingly rule and reign. All of it. But God's sovereignty isn't just about his ability to rule. Right? It's not just about his ability, it's also about his right to do it in the first place. You see, humans inherit thrones by birthright, or are elected to them by elected to office by the masses, or they gain control of them by powerful influence. But God's right to rule is not just a matter of his ability to take control. Instead, the Bible says that God not only has the power to rule, but he has the right to do it because he is the creator of everything. In Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 says it this way, that the earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas, he established it on the waters. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the, the host of heaven is crying out to God that he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he created everything. And by his will, they have their being. Jeremiah chapter 32, the, the prophet says of this of God, he says, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and our stretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. First Chronicles chapter 29, King David praises God saying this. He says, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory and majesty and splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all wealth and honor. They come from you for you are the ruler of all. See, God not only has the ability to rule and reign, he has the right to do it. And he doesn't do it as an absentee landlord, just kind of setting things off in motion. The great king and creator of the universe rules, as we talked about in his omnipresence, he rules imminently. He is not far off and distant, but his rule and reign exists in every corner of the universe. Present perfectly. And the reality is, is that when you behold and believe in a God like that, a God who not just has the power to rule and reign, but a God who has the right to do it, then that impacts you in some really profound ways. It's not just a theological idea. It's something that changes your life. The first thing that it does is that it humbles you. You and I, we like to live under this false idea that we have all kinds of control when the reality is, is that we can barely control ourselves, let alone anyone or anything else. James, he writes to the church this way. He says it in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into this city or that city and spend a year there or carry on business or make money. He says, why do you even, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're just a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. See, what James is getting at is the idea that you and I, we can't even tell what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone today. But God does. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and every moment of time is marching towards his purposes. And that reality should deeply humble us. Should deeply humble us. But more than that, 
it should also deeply comfort and encourage us. See, much of our anxiety and worry and fear and discouragement is the result of the fact that when we perceive things to be out of our control, we assume they are actually out of control in general. But the reality that Scripture keeps reminding us is that your ability to control situations is irrelevant because the great king and creator of the universe presides over all of it. And although you might think you are in control, you aren't actually. And when you think you're not, he still is. See, he is working in the midst not only of your own mistakes and your failings, but he is working your outright sin and rebellion and and evil that you and others do for your good and for his glorious plans and purposes. That's the kind of sovereignty he has. You see, without a sovereign God, the only conclusion that you can come to in light of catastrophe and difficulty and all kinds of situations in your life is the kind of despair that Hamlet talks about, right? When he talks about the the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? He's just saying, well, I guess bad things just happen. They just do. I don't know what to do about it. But because God is sovereign, you can have a confidence and hope in the midst of the most difficult and uncertain kinds of situations because the reality is is that God's sovereignty is unchanging. And if God wasn't out of control when Jesus was hanging on the cross being murdered, you can guarantee he is not out of control in whatever situation you are facing. If he was not out of control then, he is not out of control now. You see, embracing his sovereignty, what it does is it lets you give over the false sense of control you have back to him. So he can actually bear the weight of being in control. It's a weight you were never designed to bear and you can't. It's crushing because your sovereignty is so deeply limited. It is so infinitesimally small that you run into the edges of it instantly. See, and part of the way that we give back God control over the things that we're not in control of, part of the way you do that's through prayer, right? The beauty of prayer, right, is that when you pray, you are talking to the sovereign king of the universe, right? He's not just a sympathetic friend who cares about you but can't actually do anything. He's the Lord of everything, He has unlimited resources, infinite power to bring about his own purposes, and he loves you. And so prayer is this choosing us for us to give our the weight of those things back to God, letting him be in control, and giving those things back to him by acknowledging that they weren't yours in the first place. And this is just an aside, but sometimes people think that prayer and God's sovereignty don't mix, that they're these kind of like oil and water things. They don't really go together, right? They, that if God's in complete control of everything, there's no reason to pray. But the reality is that the, the Bible repeatedly invites you to pray, commands you to pray. Jesus teaches you how to do it. James writes in chapter 5, right, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Right, so... It can't be that God's sovereignty and that prayer don't merge, right? Those aren't dichotic things. So don't let that false dichotomy prevent you from praying. So God's sovereignty is deeply comforting, right, for all the reasons we've talked about, but also because of this. God's sovereignty means that you can count on him to always keep his promises. My ability to keep my promises is limited based on all kinds of factors I don't have control of. Right? The weather, 
how my, how my day goes, my ability to do things. It has all kinds of limits. God's ability to keep his promises has absolutely no limits. There is nothing that could happen that could throw him off his game. There's nothing that could happen that could distract him. There is no opposition that could cause him to rethink his plans. And because he has absolute authority over everything, that's the reason why you can be confident he will always keep his promises. He can do it. You see, in the end, the Bible presents God's sovereignty as this overwhelmingly good thing. It's good news. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, the, the, the writer says it this way. He says, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations that the Lord reigns. His sovereign authority is good news. It's good news that humbles us and that comforts us. But I think lastly and most importantly, it's good news that also calls us to surrender, to submit our allegiance to him. See, the only appropriate response to the truth of God's sovereignty is surrender. Right? For us to give all we are and all we have back to him. To say, God, you are king and I am not. And you are right and I am not. And you get to be Lord and I am not. See, in fact, the only way that you get the comfort and the joy that comes from his sovereignty is if you first are willing to surrender to it. See, the problem is, is that instead of beholding and believing in the sovereignty of God, instead of what we do is we doubt his sovereignty all the time. Right? We doubt it. All kinds of reasons. We only have time to cover two this morning. But the first is this. One of the first reasons why we doubt God's sovereignty is we tend to interpret him through the lens of our circumstances and situations. Right? In a world that seems out of control, where difficult things happen not just to random people, but to you and to the people that you love, where difficult things like racism and injustice and war all seem unending, unthwarted, it is hard to believe that a God who is worth worshiping is somehow actually in control right? We think, how could God be sovereign if X has happened? Or because Y has happened, there's no way he could be. And that feeling is nothing new because the reality is, is that from the beginning, God declares, what, what God declares to be true about himself is not always experientially obvious. So you can be pretty sure that the reality of God's sovereignty did not seem experientially obvious to the Israelites during the 400 years they spent in slavery in Egypt. Right, until the day that Moses came to Pharaoh's court demanding on God's behalf that he would let them go and how he confirmed the source of his divine authority by performing signs and wonders and miracles that brought the greatest empire in the world at the time to its knees. And you can bet that the reality of God's sovereignty didn't seem obvious to the disciples who were watching Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah and rescuer, hanging on a cross until three days later when his tomb was empty and he was eating and drinking with them. And you can assume that the reality of God's sovereignty did not seem obvious to the Christians in the early church who were being hunted down and murdered and killed by Saul 
until the resurrected, ruling, and reigning Jesus himself knocked Saul off of his horse and transformed him from a persecutor into a pastor. Here's the deal, church. You cannot form your theology about God by mere horizontal observation. You have to form it by a vertical exercising of faith. See, instead of interpreting God through the lens of your circumstances, the Bible calls us repeatedly that we might interpret our circumstances through the lens of who God says He is. And that we might trust that who He said and proven Himself to be is true, even if you don't see it right now. Because God never changes. You can know that his sovereign rule and authority has not changed. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, he has not changed. So sometimes we doubt God's sovereignty because we interpret him through the lens of our circumstances instead of the other way around. But the other, thing, the other reasons why we doubt God's sovereignty is because we think for some reason that his sovereignty and our free will and our responsibility are somehow at odds with each other. Right? We think that if God's absolutely sovereign, then I must just be a robot, right? that I don't have any responsibility for my choices, I'm just kind of a drone. Or, or we think that if the reality of my free will and the ability to choose means that God's not actually sovereign, and we, we pit these kinds of things against each other, but the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible consistently affirms both the absolute sovereignty of God and the reality of our free will to choose and responsibility for our actions. It holds those things in tension because the reality is that the way God chooses to accomplish his sovereign purposes is often through the vehicle of our own decisions and choices. See, it's not an either or, it's a both and kind of situation. And the reality is exactly how those two things coexist, I can't explain to you. And I can't just like break it down in some 36 bullet point thing. This is exactly how those two things work. And here's how everything fits perfectly together. I can't do that. But that doesn't mean that they're not compatible. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because we began our series talking about how God is infinite and we are finite. And the reality is, is if God is as infinitely wise and complex as he describes himself to be, there are bound to be at least a few things that might seem opposing to us, that are indeed quite compatible to him. It's kind of like how every kid thinks that their parents' love and discipline are these contrasting things, that there's no way those two things could be the same. And then you grow up and you start having kids of your own, and you're like, oh, that actually is the same thing. Right? My love and my discipline for my kids, they are not opposing forces. They're, they're one thing, they work together. See, the reality is, is that you and I have to be willing to accept that there is a creature-creator line that we are going to be unable to cross in some ways. That there are some things we're not going to be able to completely understand, but that we can still trust are true because God says that they are. Paul Tripp, he writes it this way again, so helpful, I think. He says, God's answers our desire to know and understand not by giving us answers, but by giving us himself. He reveals to us his existence, his rule, his wisdom, his faithfulness, and his love so that we can experience peace and rest of heart even as we are faced with painful mysteries. And the more that you come to know him and understand the character of his loving care, the deeper your rest becomes, he says, because ultimately rest is not found in knowing. It's found in trusting the one who knows. 
You see, instead of beholding and believing in God's sovereignty, we doubt it for all kinds of reasons. There's plenty more I didn't get to this morning. But we don't just doubt it. We outright rebel against it. See, instead of surrendering control to a sovereign God, we want Him and others to surrender to our own control. Right? Deep in our own hearts, we, we want a world that follows our sovereign plan, and we want people that do our bidding. Right? We want to rule and reign over all kinds of things. We have no right or ability to do so. Right? And when we, when we take that desire, when our own desire for sovereignty gets root in our hearts, what becomes is we become just domineering kinds of people. Even if we think we have good motives. And we do it because we think that we need to be the ones that are sovereign. And sometimes we do that openly. We reject God's outright rule and authority in, in his world and in our lives. And sometimes we do that a little more hiddenly, right? By, by just kind of trying to exercise our own power and authority in our own spheres of influence. We act as if we're in more control than we really are. We take credit for things we could never have produced on our own. We think we can make life work based on our own ability, and we praise ourselves for things we should be praising God for. But the reality is, is that whether it's blatant or more disguised, what it all is is sin. You see, we've tried to usurp God's authority as king when all we've really done is stage a failed coup to enthrone ourselves. And that's a reality that we are quickly reminded of as soon as our authority reaches its minuscule limits. You can barely control yourself, let alone the world around you. We come face to face the reality that we are not sovereign all the time. We just don't want to admit that truth. And so the question is, how do we go from unbelief and rebellion to belief and surrender when it comes to the sovereignty of God? How do you do that? Well, it begins by repenting of our desire to be sovereign ourselves, by admitting that reality to God, right? That we want to be in control, but that we aren't. And the reality is that you'll never be able to have the joy and trust that comes from surrendering to him unless you first are able to admit that you don't want to surrender in the first place. But it's not just about repenting of our own desire for sovereignty. We also have to behold the truth about the sovereign God himself. He alone has absolute power and authority and control. He rules and reigns over everyone and everything, but he is not just sovereign. He is good. He is a good and loving father. He is perfectly holy. He is absolutely just. He always does what is right. He never abides evil, let alone tolerates it in his presence. He is perfectly good. See, I opened my sermon by saying that the reason why I'd saved this attribute for the last is because the idea of God's infinite rule is not just difficult to wrap our minds around, it is hard to trust. And the only way that you're going to be able to trust and to surrender to God's sovereignty is when you behold not only his power, but his good and perfect love. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus, again, he's talking about the sparrows, right? He says, not one of them falls outside of your father's 
care. See, the God who reigns and rules over all the universe, he does it with the protective care of a loving father. And his perfect fatherly love and his absolute sovereignty, they come to meet perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus. You see, God's sovereign rule over every time and every place and every circumstance and every person led him to sending his son to this earth to live the life that you and I have refused to live and could not if we tried and to die the death that our mutinous rebellion deserves so that you and I who are rebels against the very sovereignty of God might instead of being crushed by it as we rightly deserve, might instead be received into it, brought under it through faith. Here's the, church, here's the reality, church. The degree to which you hold intention, the sovereignty of God and his goodness as perfectly revealed at the cross, the degree to which you hold those things in tension, that's going to be the degree to which you are willing to surrender to him. And if God is just a sovereign king, then you should fear him. But if he is also a good and loving father then you can gladly surrender to him because you know that surrender is for your good. See, and that's part of what we're remembering and celebrating when we take communion every week. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus' death on the cross in our place is not just the thing that pays the penalty for our sins. It is the means by which God's sovereignty gets to be good news to you. Because at the cross, God goes from just being a sovereign king to being a good father. It's the proof. It's how you know. So communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible's clear that faith in the person and the work of Jesus, that's the one thing that does that. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember to remember that the sovereign God of the universe exercised his sovereign authority in such a way that you and I might have the opportunity for forgiveness, reconciliation, to be brought into his family. He used it for our good at his own expense. That's the kind of sovereignty he exercises. And so if you have trusted Jesus, and if you have believed the gospel, his work on your behalf to make you right with God, then I want to encourage you during our time of communion, go back and take communion, time of worship. Right, nobody's going to dismiss you. You can go back as you feel led. There's a table on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of Jesus' body and blood which were broken and shed for you. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know how welcome you are in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion God is not after veiled religious rituals. He is the sovereign king of the universe. He does not need your motions. What he's after is your complete surrender. That's the only right response to him. But it's good because you know that he is not just sovereign, but that he is a good father. And so surrender to him is the safest place you can be. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you are at, talk with God. Some of you need the reality of his sovereignty to humble you. You think you have all kinds of control that you do not have. 
For some of you, you need it to comfort you. You feel out of control, and you need the reminder that he isn't. And all of us need the reminder that we, must, that we are all called to surrender to him. To submit our allegiance, all of ourselves, every part of us, to give him authority. It's rightfully his, and it's the way to life. There's no other. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder that you are not just the sovereign king of everything, but that you are indeed a good and loving father. That you are holy and just. You are good and pure in every way. And so your sovereignty, God, is never something we need to be afraid of. But it's always something, God, that but through faith in Jesus can be good news for us. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to gladly submit to you, to reject the false idea that we have some kind of sovereignty on our own, and instead to embrace your good kingly rule in our lives and in our world. Help us to model that personally so that we might declare it corporately. Help us to be a people that proclaims the goodness of your sovereign rule and reign. Amen.